0: Welcome to Talking Research. I'm Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. For this introductory episode, I had the incredible honor of being joined by Dr. Mitu M. Sanyal. Meetu is an award-winning German academic, a cultural historian, a radio presenter and an author. Her first book, *Vulva*, was translated into five different languages and her second book, Rape from Lucretia to Meetu*, came out earlier this year and has received widespread acclaim. So let's dive in. Hello, Mitru. Thank you so much for joining us at Talking Research. Really quickly, can you introduce yourself? My
1: name is Mitu Sanyal. I'm a German cultural historian, I'm an academic, I'm a broadcaster and mainly I'm an author. So I write books and I write for the radio and I write articles and essays and stuff. And I'm also a kind of public intellectual, so to speak. And I'm quite a well-known feminist in Germany, which might be important for our talk because um, um, some of the things I'm saying might not be received feminine wisdom, but but they are actually... (laughs)
0: Okay, brilliant. How did you get to where you are? How did you get into research and sexual violence and cultural criticism and um, everything else that you just mentioned? um when
1: i when i went to university in in the 90s they basically told us um, you'll never get a job <laughs> stay here as long as you can there are no jobs out there for for people who want to think so um that was quite difficult and then i start to go to loads of different universities so i studied at quite a lot of different universities in germany um, until I found one in Essen where my professor he he was quite a famous guy um, in in journalism and in publishing in Germany so um, and then when he was um, shortly before retiring he built up this um, uh, this kind of studies. Um, it, was, it, it was a kind of media studies but it was kind of special. so I went there and he went around the courses and says you you and you, Come and come and visit me in my um in my in my um what's it called uh, when you go to ask some questions. So basically, um, we went there and he said, "Okay, what do you want to do?" And I said, "Yeah, I want to write for the radio." And he said, "Okay, I'll call a friend." And that is how I got my first job on the radio because he called a friend and said, "Okay, let her do something." And and then I could do a very very short um, feature for the radio. I think it was less than five minutes, and and so that was where it started. And from there on, you do the next and the next and the next. But I had been doing a lot of um, political work before. I had been doing a lot of unpaid journalist work, and I always wanted to write. So I I had been writing novels usually. Up until page 80 and then I stopped <laughs> and then, then I lost faith and then, then I stopped writing them. But I had been doing a lot of writing. Um, I've been doing uh, spoken words. Um, we, we were a group of authors so who we were doing a lot of spoken word stuff in the early 90s when it just started happening. So I had been very active in this field before I got the chance to go on the radio.
0: Okay, amazing. I came across your work for the first time earlier this year when I picked up your latest book, Rape, from Lucretia to Me Too, in a bookstore in Edinburgh, and then I got the chance to see you at a talk in a bookstore in Edinburgh, and it took me a while to get through Rape because it's just such a voluminous compendium of sorts of different disciplines and different perspectives on sexual violence as an issue, and... uh, it's it's quite it's quite voluminous and it it's quite uh, an in-depth study you don't claim to look at every single documented case you know you don't claim to do that but you bring together a myriad of disciplines and perspectives on rape and sort of see how they're connected and um, i think one word i'd use to describe it is revolutionary because it's just it is a step forward i mean it's 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 sort of looking at where do we go from here and where, where how did we get here and where do we go from here so tell me about that how did you get to writing that book and uh, what was that journey like well,
1: I am a cultural historian, so I always look for structures. Always want to try to understand the, the hidden structures, and I wanted actually I wanted to call the book "Why We Talk About Rape: The Way We Talk About it and Why We Think About Rape: The Way We Think About It." But there's another book that's got that title, and and it's also by an Indian author, so I really like that. And I've got it. I haven't read it yet, but I bought it, so it's lying next to my bed. Um, uh, how do how do I start writing? And it, it actually it. It started quite a long time ago. Um, in 2009, I published a book called Vulva, the cultural history of the vulva, of the genital. And whenever I did lectures afterwards, people came to me and asked me, oh, and what about rape? And I was really pissed off. And I thought, no, the vulva's got nothing to do with rape, but you always ask me that. And And then I started researching, why do people ask me that question? And in the way we tell sexual stories in our societies and narratives, the sexual narratives, they do link the wolver to rape. They say, oh, this is the kind of um, gateway, this is um, the unprotected gateway into a woman's body and, and this is where a woman can be violated. All these very, the, the these narratives that are not necessarily true, but they're kind of um, truisms. We kind of do believe them as a culture, even though we don't believe them individually. Um, the other thing is that as a feminist, one of the f- earliest things that happened was activism against sexual violence. And, and at university, we went to all these um, demonstrations, all these marches, protest marches. And then people came to us and said, I've been raped and what can I do? And they asked us, what can I do to heal? And we didn't have any answers. And, and that really shocked me because all the books, out there that time told us if you're raped then your life is over so basically you're broken forever and to say to somebody, "I can't do anything this is it is not really helpful and and I really started doing a lot of research into that how is the way we talk about rape um, detrimental to healing and and how could we find better ways to to talk about it so it opens up the possibility of healing. It doesn't doesn't mean um, that everybody can heal or or needs to heal or wants to heal. But but the idea that this is the end of your life, this is so nasty, it can happen to you anytime and then it's the end of your life. Thank you. And and so that was incredibly important. That was one of the motors to write that book. And there was a third motor. and, And that was actually um, all the discourse about gender so why when we think about rape do we think of female victims and male perpetrators is that a kind of biological fact and I want to find out about that and that so these are the three things that went into my book and these other three kind of alleys I want to explore.
0: I think that's very interesting because one of the main things that I took away from the book was that it gave me a solid historical perspective on rape as a concept and rape as a social, uh, as a social construct that we've engaged with ever since prehistoric times and uh, how that shapes where we are today. And... um, I want to talk more about uh, the history of uh, of rape, as you you mentioned, you're a cultural historian. You've talked in length in your book about how rape is a gendered crime and how honour as a concept is entrenched deeply with it. So can you tell me more about that?
1: Um, Well, it is wonderful when you say that you've got a comprehensive uh, historical overview. This is what I was aiming at. I, I don't think anybody can ever achieve that, but this is basically what I wanted to achieve. So... I'm sure the aspects that we could still add to it, but the idea of honor is um, historically. was the idea that honor was part of the woman's body. And um, and it was kind of situated in her hymen. Hymen doesn't exist, but that's a different story. Um, we were told, um, you you had your honor. It was situated in your hymen. So either you gave it to your husband at marriage or you could kind of lose it voluntary or involuntary. So um, you could just sleep around or it could be stolen from you by rape. So um, only a woman could lose her honor by the act of rape, men also had an honor, but they were negotiated. Their honor was negotiated in the public sphere, so um, in the workplace or on the battlefield. And if they lost their honor, um, that was just as big a problem as when a woman lost their honor, but they couldn't lose their honor via sex. That was the idea behind that. So they could um, be deserters in a war. And that would mean they lost their honor. And that meant they lost their place in society. And the same with women. Once they'd lost their honor, they had lost their place in society. And so the idea was um, a woman should commit suicide then she could regain her honor by by giving up life so we've got the that is why my book is called from Lucretia to me too because Lucretia is that um we're always told she's a historical figure she's not a historical figure she is a, <laughs> she's complete fabrication and we're told there's this um ancient Roman woman and she was raped and then she called her husband and her father and told them because she was raped and because she lost her honor she wanted to kill herself so that no other wife could claim (laughs) she um, by citing her that she had been raped when she just committed adultery that was that that is a quote in that text which is amazing so she killed herself and and she was held up as the, the, the heroine of the story and I remember we had to translate that story in Latin at school we had to translate it and we were told this is the happy ending so, hello she's <laughs> just dying <laughs> this is not a happy ending and and but because we were so bored by Latin anyway so so we didn't question it um, but I know quite a lot of people who had this idea so if I'm raped I've got to kill myself then um, with the start of Christianity. Obviously, suicide became a mortal sin. You were not allowed to kill yourself any longer. And Augustine, he writes a lot about Lucretia. He he writes, "Oh, um, how can she? How can she be a heroine? How can she be held up as a role model?" And he comes to the conclusion that no, you shouldn't kill yourself, but you should basically die of a broken heart. You should still kind of take your offending body away. And um, if you don't die of a broken heart, you still got to take yourself away from society by going to a convent or by becoming ill or by by doing good deeds to the rest of your life. So the amount of your honor is kind of measured by the amount of your pain. If you had a lot of pain, then your honor had to be very big so if you stopped crying after even a year or 10 years that meant that the honor couldn't have been so big so if somebody steals my car i don't have to cry every day to show it was a really nice car but um if i if i had been raped at that time i would have had to show till the end of my life um, i had to prove it with my own body with my own psyche I had to prove that there had really been a crime and that in that makes rape very very special so um there's nothing objective that you can gauge you gauge it by the victim's pain and that is another reason why when we talk about healing it feels nearly like a betrayal it feels like we're saying oh the crime hasn't been so bad which is obviously not true so you can you can heal after after genocide so um you, you, i mean <laughs> i don't want to make anything small i just mean People can heal, and it doesn't say anything about what they've experienced. It just says something about themselves.
0: This is quite interesting because uh, when I was growing up in India, I was expo- uh, exposed to a lot of mythology, and uh, even in Indian mythology, in all the stories, as you might be familiar, you see the goddess who's been raped, and uh, that that in an attempt to take her honor away, to sort of reduce her to a state that's worse than death um is that is that something that you've explored more in your research, Indian and more Eastern perspectives as well, or has your concentration been more towards western notions
1: Oh there's this lovely story about the unveiling about which one is it um is it um Draupadi? yeah. Yes, that's it, and and um, I, I absolutely love that story. And have you read the Mahsveeta Devi story? That's called Draupadi as well. And she has written a kind of mirror story to it. And 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 her Draupadi, she is um, she is uh, a god. Um, she, she's an untouchable I don't know exactly which car who well, where she but basically she is a um, freedom fighter and then um, they kill her husband and finally they imprison her and then um, she's raped for a whole day and a night and then um, she is naked and the policeman tries to close her he tries to forcibly close her and it's impossible he can't put close on her he can't make the crime invisible so to speak and and, and she she takes that and and that is a brilliant it's a brilliant example because she is so angry I mean it is it is a nasty situation and um they want to um they want to humiliate her but but she the the retribution they have to pay for the act of, of trying to to unrape her of trying to they they want to they want to humiliate her but it is they want to rape her um that is that is the aim but the retribution for that is death for everyone concerned <laughs> Um, yes, there is a lot in there, but there's also, I mean, there there are also figures like Carly who um, who does the opposite and and who who fights with her unruly body. Um, there's this brilliant story when um, when she fights the demon and and he first he offers to her marriage and she she laughs about it and then he he threatens her to to rape her and and then she. Uh, manifests all the other goddesses via her vulva, and they kill the demon, and they kill the demon together, and none of the other gods could do that. It's only the the, <laughs> the goddesses who, who had that who had that power, and that was also very very interesting. So there are so many different um, layers to that, and I'm always having grown up in Germany and and um, my father comes from India so so I'm half Indian and and we always kind of faced with all these stereotypes about oh Indian women and they're so worried about their honor and and oh honor killings in India and and so um and I I'd been I'd started to get really pissed off about the way that Indian women were um, portrayed in Germany or in or in England, for that matter, as being so incredibly passive and and only concerned about their honor and and I thought, wait, we have got an active female sexuality. We have got narratives about that. We got goddesses who are um, who have got a libido, who claim that. Who, um, for example, when Shiva is dead. When Shiva, um, is Shava, and 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 Kali comes, and she makes him um, realize who she is. She makes him see her, and she sits on him, and she she fucks him. I mean, we could talk about we could talk about consent there <laughs> as well, but that's a different different thing. But but she doesn't accept that he can't. Um, oh, yeah. What's what's the word for it? Um, um, kindness. Um, what's the word in English? Oh dear, um, it's it, um in German it's basically it's, it's it's a verb that means seeing, but it also means enlightenment. It means I'm able to see your soul. I'm I'm able to to really see who you are, and that's what she makes him do. She, and and by by doing that, she makes him also have empathy with the rest of the world again. So he 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 isn't just this this bodiless mind who who looks at it in this abstract way he he becomes embodied again and so he becomes part of the world and he he has love and pain and and empathy for the world again
0: right who do you recommend as um as a source for someone who's trying to find out more about the historical um the the historical cultural history of rape what sources would you recommend for someone my book um (laughs) no um it took me
1: it was quite difficult i did a lot of research i love jana burke's book it's called rape as well and it, it's a it's a cultural history but actually she wanted to call it rapists a cultural history of rapists but um she thought nobody will pick up a book that's called rapists a cultural history yeah. so she called it rape and that is a brilliant book i really like that um there are so many different books um, and there, quite a lot of it went into the book. And if you look at the bibliography at the end, it is incredibly long. And I threw quite a lot of books out. <laughs> so I <laughs> thought, yeah, I haven't taken that much from those because it, it just got too long. And um, what I'm interested in at the moment is also um, um, what's it called, uh, retribution. And, um, Oh God, what's the word in English? There're always these special <laughs> special words um just restorative justice that's what I'm looking at at the moment which is which is very interesting because we've got the problem at the moment that um we we um when we go to court we, we tell victims the right way to deal with an act of rape is to report it and go to court which can be the right way but it can also be incredibly traumatizing going to court is not easy and um, not just in a case of rape, by the way, but but especially in a case of rape. So, um, but even if there is a conviction, you don't get anything from it. Um, So if the perpetrator goes to jail for, I don't know, two years, three years, five months, 10 years, um, you don't get anything, you don't get any retribution. And um, we, we, we say, oh, you have got justice, and that might be the case, but usually what is really a relief is when somebody else, like a judge says, that was really wrong. You shouldn't have done that, and that is. Um, and I talked to quite a lot of people, and they um, who had been um, raped, and they said the most important thing in the uh, in the court was that somebody else, some higher power, said you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that to this person. So, in, and and um. But I've also talked to people who went um, the restorative justice way, which meant um, they asked only the victim can say I want this, and um, you can claim that, and um. The, then if the perpetrator is willing the perpetrator and the victim meet in court and they get a kind of mediator and um, they can speak and find out what would be a, a good way of retribution so so um, they the victim can find out what would make me feel good and quite a lot of people said for them it was incredibly important that a the perpetrator said sorry to them and, and saw what, what he, or in most cases it was a male perpetrator, had done to them and realized oh, I've really, I've really done something detrimental to you. I didn't want that. Um, and the second thing was, um so they, uh, a lot of them said, it helped with healing because um, they were not afraid afterwards, they could happen any time because they saw it was one person, one individual, and it's not, it can't happen with everybody any time. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's always the right thing to do but um it is very interesting when it works it, it, it is very very um it is a great relief and um they did things like uh m- one woman said, "Um, they found out. Okay, there's this psychological problem, and uh, the perpetrator had to get help. He actually went to he went to jail, but um, it was a kind of psychi- psychiatric jail, and um, he didn't stay as long as he would have stayed otherwise. But he got um special treatment, and she had the feeling she felt safe afterwards because perpetrators do get out of jail eventually, <laughs> and um, and you do want them to." come out and not reoffend, and that's there's a problem because um at the moment we think oh they should all go to jail and then we stop thinking about it we kind of hope they just explode and stop existing but that's not the case so you can't put people away forever so they will come out eventually and jail is a it's a very very violent place and there are more rapes in jail than outside so um people who go to to jail for rape they either are raped or will rape again there so it's it is a vicious circle and if you want to break that vicious circle cycle then um then you've got to really look at treatment and um in sweden i was in I was in Sweden uh, a short while ago and they they said they said that they had very good um, experiences with treating of rapists. They said they are actually the cases they're easiest to treat. Now, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I, I wouldn't have expected that. Um, and so I, I asked them to give me more information about that but that would be really interesting because I know people who do, who work with rapists they also work with victims, they're psychologists not not together, not, not, <laughs> it's not um, the victim and the rapist come to them but but they offer, they go to they go to prisons and they, they work there and so, um, and when they mention that, for example at a dinner party, people really hate them for it they've got this idea of, oh they're rapists and now you go there and cuddle them no, no, that's not what it means but it is so incredibly important to stop this cycle and to change something, and we've also got this idea that rapists are bad people. Full stop. So, um, <laughs> and they should stop being bad people. And the problem is, when you go to jail, when you ask rapists, either they say, "Oh, I hate rape. It was something different in my case. <laughs> in me, it was something different." Or if they um, if they take it on, they say, "Yes, I have actually raped someone." Um, the second reaction is, "I'm scum. I'm not worth living." So, and in both cases, you can't change your, you can't change your behavior. You can only take responsibility when you say, "Yes, I, I'm still a human being, and human beings can change. I've done something awful to somebody else, but I'm still a human being. I'm, I'm genuinely good, and I don't want to do that again." And you can only take this responsibility, and, and this is made so hard in our society to look at it, and take responsibility without. Hating yourself completely and thinking, I've lost the right to be a human being.
0: Well, you said earlier on about, in your book as well, about the myth of self precipitating crime rape being treated as a self-precipitating crime and uh how that was how rape victims were treated in and even now to an extent they are treated that way and Because the ration of empathy in our society has been so low for rape victims, there is only one suitable portrait of the deserving victim and how that is incredibly harmful for millions of women and men and people of all genders who go through rape. So can you talk more about that? Well, first of all, um I think the idea was
1: rape is the worst crime, but it's incredibly rare. So it's like being struck by lightning, so to speak. So real rape is very rare. So so most of the cases we, we talk about, they'd say, No, that's not real rape. <laughs> um and so um in some way the victim had to had to be the real perpetrator, so to speak. They had to kind of um, shift the blame there. So it was either, um, they did a lot of that in victimology when they started that um, in the at the beginning of the 20th century when they started looking at victims, they said, oh, the perpetrator has a desire for the victim, but the, the victim also has got a desire for the perpetrator. Well, wow. <laughs> so like, like the car wants to be stolen, mm, I don't know. Um, and and i do understand that um when you start a kind of discipline you you make loads of mistakes and and it's very easy to judge from the distance but it had a lot of really detrimental effects on victims so um it was also that in psychiatry um the idea of um history his- hystericism so to speak a hysteric woman um uh, quite a lot of women came to freud and and told him about having been raped or having been sexually assaulted um, or sexually abused. And and at the beginning, he believed them. And then because they were women from best society and the perpetrators were their fathers or uncles or or, or friends of the family, so they were rich men, um, and and so the psychiatric society said that can't be true you can't say that and he actually made a u-turn and he said ha, no um it's wrong these are hysterics these women are hysterics and um uh, the the kind of proof that you are hysteric is that you tend to make false accusations of sexual violence so um and and that basically meant that until the 1950s, if a woman reported rape, and only a woman could report rape at that time, um, she had to undergo a psychiatric assessment to find out whether she really was a hysteric. And in most cases, they thought, oh, yes, that is the solution for it. Or um, it's also that the, uh, the 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 rapable subjects were a very small group. So, for example, for a long time, if you were working class, you couldn't be raped. If you were a sex worker, you couldn't be raped because you didn't have an honour anyway. If you were not white, you couldn't be raped. So um, black women, um, colonialized women, women of colour, they couldn't be raped. Um, men couldn't be raped. So loads and loads and loads of people, women who weren't virgins, couldn't be raped and so forth. So... Um, the the group that that you could imagine as being rapable was a very small group anyway.
0: Mm. Specifically, you also talked about one of the examples being uh, the teenage woman who was drugged and raped by Roman Polonsky and how she uh, kept on requesting media to give her space, to give her privacy, to heal, to have a normal functioning life but people just wouldn't and there would be Uh, prime time debates where you'd have a panel of feminists and a panel of um, other news anchors who would just argue about her case relentlessly and I thought thought that was quite a powerful example of how well-meaning feminists and um, people in the mainstream of society who want to achieve something positive Uh, in, in this situation, but actually ended up doing more harm than good and how her case ultimately was not dismissed by the court. Still isn't, still isn't.
1: Yeah, I became kind of um, obsessed with Samantha Geimer. She is she is amazing as a person, anyway. And the, and the case is really difficult because when you first encounter and she was um, I think thirteen and and she he drugged her and and uh, well he he penetrated her against her will. And you think like, it's awful. it's absolutely awful. And it is. I mean, and she never said it wasn't a problem. Um, so you encounter that case. And then the police came in and then the media came in and then the court came, in, the courts came in and everything got worse. And that is really interesting. So um, by the time a, a person has been raped, they become kind of public um, property in in the way we are, we are thinking. Obviously not, not really. But so everybody thought um, now. Her story isn't her story anymore. She can't make any decisions about her life anymore. So her story belongs to us, and and even the courts. When they, when she pleaded with them the last time, she pleaded with the, with the Crown Court in California and said, "Please, I want to have closure for this." And they said, "No, um, it's not about her personal story. It's about ca- um, safeguarding the people of California." And I think, yeah, but a Roman Catholic will never come to California. You're not safeguarding anyone. You're basically denying her a human right. to her own story and um they had actually agreed on something so her attorney and his attorney had agreed on something that we might not find enough so they agreed on 40 days prison for him which we and and him taking uh, the responsibility and everything so she wouldn't have to appear in court because she was really she didn't want to be eaten alive she wanted she wanted to avoid what basically happened to her um and we, we could argue that 40 days to rape a 13-year-old girl is not enough. And, and fine, so what would be enough? Can you put a price on it? It's always a very difficult question. But this is what she felt would be right. She only wanted him to agree they was wrong what he did and 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 to leave her alone and she didn't want to appear in public and and that was that was what she wanted and that was what they agreed on but because he was a was a celebrity and the, the the judge wanted to to be a celebrity judge and so he um he wanted to and I think he went to go for 50 years and Romy polanski having been um traumatized in his earlier life took the next and and uh, by the Nazis by fascist Germany um who had kills his relatives so so there is there is a there, that doesn't mean oh the poor guy but it just means it is understandable that uh, that he thought 50 years in prison as, as a Jewish man um, I don't trust them and he took the next plane and went out Um, and and so really the, the the media came to her house they asked incredibly intimate questions that you wouldn't dare to ask anyone so if if you had had an awful accident, for example, people wouldn't ask you intimate questions. Oh, where, where, and 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 so what's broken in your body? So they, so her body, her psyche. Um, they thought they had a right to it and they they debated her trauma. And when she didn't seem traumatized enough, then they debated why she wasn't. And maybe it was her fault after all. And and maybe she just wanted to get money out of him, which she hadn't. But even if she had, even if she'd said, OK, I want to get some some money for my pains, that would have been her right to do that. And it, that is so um, we talk about respecting someone's borders and then they didn't respect her borders and and she said that sentence in her book that um the rape was awful but what was a lot more awful for her what was a lot worse for her was the way she was treated by the media and by by the court and and if you if you think about that that that's really kind of chilling And it's also because she is so fair, she is so fair to everyone, she's trying to understand them all, she's um, putting her case, and she is even very fair to Roman Polanski, she never says it's no problem, but she says, well, this is the case, he did something wrong, but he was still also treated in a way that wasn't fair. The way the media treats him, the way the the courts treat him now is not in any way adequate to his crime, which is amazing, which shows she is quite a big character in herself. And when you hear her talk, you're very, very impressed by her, even though it had awful repercussions on her life. And every time he had a new film out, people came to her house and said, and how was it to have been raped by him? So if he gets an Oscar, what do you think about it when you have been raped by him? And they they talked to her children when she was grown up she had kids and then they they stopped her kids at school and said oh how do you feel about your mother having been raped which is so wow this is really good when you want to work for women when you want to fight for women to basically traumatize them even more and then you notice it is not about her it's about their sense of justice or their sense of entitlement I don't know what it is
0: right and uh I think it was quite brilliantly put in the book about how, you know, victims who don't, you know, who, who don't want to seek therapy and who don't want to be treated as victims. And oftentimes they are rejected by their families and they're told that they're not behaving in the way that uh, a rape victim is supposed to behave. And um, that was quite a cataclysmic realization for me as well. So thank you for that. Moving on at the back of the blurb of your book it says that you argue with liberals conservatives feminists and sexists alike in this book and i come from uh, a strong feminist background and you know some of the concepts i read about initially i found i found it hard to take them in right away but the more i thought about them and the more i engaged with them i i mean it made sense it added up so is that something that was important for you to engage with all these different strands of opinion?
1: Well, actually, I am—I I am a feminist, so um, a lot of my research for the book was talking to the rape crisis centres in Germany. So it is—I um, do argue with a lot of literature and say, oh, this comes, this is uh, the tradition this stands in, but. Um, when you talk to people who work with rape victims in their daily lives, they say obviously very similar things. They say, oh, yes, um, the families of rape victims often tell them Oh, if you're not feeling traumatized enough, that means you're in denial. And, and um, then they, they force them to seek therapy. And it can be, therapy can be incredibly helpful, but you are still the kind of authority of your own life. So um, what rape does, it takes away your authority over your own life. So it's um, it, it kind of, um, or over your own body for that, for that moment, for that. Um, uh, so, and, and if, if the kind of help does the same, then that is detrimental for your psyche, and they what they are doing is, um, or what the feminist um, therapists are doing in in Germany and and internationally, is um, they say. You are healing, and and you are you you know your own way. I'm only here to help you on your way, but I'm not going to tell you how you've got to feel and and um, what to do to become better. I'm only here to assist you in your own healing because you you can you've got all the resources yourself, and that is incredibly important. And they take them seriously. That's the first thing and to 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 basically take people's feelings seriously, and they allow you change, like everything in your life. I mean, I talk about my childhood and. Um, and today when I talk about my childhood I can talk about everything that was really nice in my childhood and At at a different day, I can talk about all the very painful things and they're both true. It's not that I have to decide on one story and stick to it. And your feelings will be different about rape. And and even in the healing process, your feelings will be different. You're allowed to you you don't have to have one consistent story, which you have to have in court, for example. So if your story changes at any point, that means oh, you've been a liar. You are not trustworthy. And that's different in therapy. It's also to say not everybody needs therapy and everybody wants therapy and not everybody needs therapy now. Um, So, uh, for example, if you are in a situation where you've got to look after a small child, maybe you want to look at a rape later on. Maybe that is better for you. Maybe you you need um, your resources, your emotional resources for something else now. So there are different stages in your life. And it's also when you're in a situation where you're kind of endangered all the time. Um, that makes healing a lot harder. So if you are in an abusive relationship, that makes healing a lot harder. Or even if you're in a job that walks over your borders all the time, doesn't have to be sexual. Sometimes it can be more important to get another job first and then look at healing. So there are loads of different ways of doing it. And so... Um, I have been talking to a lot of feminists and I've been working on the I haven't been just reading and then writing the book in time. This is the way it is. So um I have I am part of a movement, I'm part of an activist movement and and I I really don't argue with feminists as such, but I argue against received feminist opinion or the way that feminist opinion is portrayed in the media. But um in and for example in Germany the book wasn't so much of a scandal in feminist circles, I'm invited mainly by by feminists, uh, by rape crisis centers, by, by gender studies um, um, at universities. And, and this is mainly people who invite me and say, oh, this is basically um, the way we're thinking about stuff anyway. And so you brought it together and I haven't invented everything from, from scratch. No, um, I, I build on a lot of study, I build on a lot of research there. Um, I have been looking at basically uh the other side but not so to speak i' i'm i'm, I'm- trying to portray strands of thinking, strands of received wisdom. So I'm trying to say, oh, um, the idea of, for example, honor feeds into the idea of trauma. We're not talking about honor any longer. She's lost her honor, but the pain about a stolen honor is kind of transferred into the way we talk about trauma. So there are all these old ways of talking about it. Um, And I just want to make this clear. I want to make clear. Um, why is it so difficult to talk about wrongful accusations, for example? And that's and I just want to make sure how it has been used historically. But it would be awful then if. Um, for a while and in the 90s um the the kind of feminist credo was uh, no woman would ever make a wrongful accusation of rape and and that is bullshit because that would make us not human so they're always wrongful accusations they're not very high um but they obviously exist and um there are reasons for it and quite a lot of them don't even name a perpetrator so um Quite a lot of them are people from, for example, very religious backgrounds or, or, or young girls um, who've, who who are pregnant and, and they know their parents will punish them for it. And so they say, oh, I have been raped. And, and um, I think over 50 percent of the wrongful accusation cases, it hasn't even been the victim who went to the police. It, it was a kind of a parent, uh, somebody else who reported it. It wasn't that the victim wanted to make trouble for anybody. It was just the victim was trying to safeguard herself against against something else um, and then there's the case of social media and I engage with that because in social media rape is a signifier for something else and, and and there it is different so it's very easy accusations on social media are kind of viral doesn't mean every accusation is wrong it's just that everything becomes viral in social media everything everything becomes amplified in social media we've got to look at that um, with a different lens and so I try to look at a bit to look at what happens what's the discourse around rape in social media and how is that um, spiraling and and what would be helpful and what would not be helpful because that is something that I'm a bit worried about Um, I absolutely love the Me Too debate I think it's incredibly important but um, like everything, it's got um, all its incredibly brilliant, important sides, for example, that victims can speak out and, and they, they know people will listen to them and, and, and will listen to them openly and will believe them. That is brilliant. And before, even I wrote the book, um, people didn't speak. I, my, my friends didn't speak to me. And I thought, that can't be true. I don't know anybody who's ever been raped. That is weird. Um, so that is amazing. But on the other hand, we talk about it now that, oh, we've got to save women from sexuality. No, I want sexual self-determination. I want, <laughs> don't want to be saved from sexuality. So there's a new kind of culture of, oh, maybe we should chaperone women again. Maybe we should um, lock them in. That is, for example, that is happening in India. So um, students, we should lock them in their bedrooms at night and in their dormitories. So they shouldn't go out. That's really good for women. No, it's not.
0: Uh, received feminist opinions in the media versus feminism. I think that's a very important distinction that just needs to needs to be emphasized constantly. Um, I mean, in, in the book, throughout different chapters, you always emphasize that you are not, in essence, arbitrating against uh, any particular experience you're not saying you're not invalidating anyone's experience and you're that is absolutely not what you're doing and if at any point someone who's gone through a traumatic sexual experience someone who's been violated if at any point they disagree they should absolutely prioritize their feelings over the content of the book you do that while also maintaining objectivity about what you're discussing so that blend of objectivity and sensitivity how can researchers who are aiming to take their findings to a larger audience how can they aim to emulate that and even you know normal people who are aiming to engage in better discourse about sexual violence how can they aim to emulate that uh, objectivity while also being sensitive about about the topic i think it's always incredibly important to
1: make clear what you're talking about? So, am I talking about an individual uh, confronting uh, an individual experience? So, um, then I absolutely think the person who's experiencing whatever is got the is the authority. So, so I, I take their feelings as the first source, so to speak. Um, Am I talking about structures? That's something else. Am I talking about the law? That is something else. Um, Or am I talking about a case of therapy? So um, in, in a therapy setting, if somebody says I've been raped, I would absolutely believe them no matter what, so their view is what I'm I'm working with. I'm I'm not a, I'm not a therapist, but this is <laughs> what what's happening in a therapy um, session. Or even if a friend comes to me and tells me they've been raped, I'm not going to question that. I, I'm going to ask them how they feel. Um, but uh, if I'm talking about a, a, a court of law. This is the way the law works. So um, the presumption of innocence is a kind of bedrock of democracy, and I don't want to get rid of that. And and so um, that is a, that is a problem because quite a lot of um, victims of rape you haven't experienced how a court of law works so they think oh it's because they don't believe me because i'm a rape victim no it's basically um that is what every court of law has got to do they have got to um presume that the accused is innocent and then they have to prove that the accused really is guilty, and that is a that is a very difficult situation, which is one of the reasons why the rape crisis centres they do a lot of coaching. This is what's going to happen. This is what you've got to expect. You've got to decide whether you want to face this or not, or whether you want to face it now. In Germany, we've got this brilliant thing. Um, it's got uh, it's called forensic, um, where you uh, where you can go to a doctor, and then they keep all the forensic evidence for ten years, for as long as you like, and then you can decide when you want to go to court. You don't have to do it immediately after the fact. So you can say after five years, now I'm strong enough. Now I want to do this. And this is amazing. And this um, is uh, very, very helpful. Um, That is important, but it's also, it doesn't always work. I mean, um, I have met people who have felt hurt by my book and I do understand it and I, I felt very, very sorry about that. I've met a lot more people who have felt kind of liberated by the book and and um, people who have been victimised, people who have um, experienced awful um, sexual trauma and, and they said it made it so much easier To be able to talk about and still be themselves, still be the person, still have some kind of agency over their life. But I do understand, um, and, and that is especially with rape, because it was so hard to fight for it to be taken seriously, just historically. The women's movement has fought so hard for it. And now I say, yeah, it has to be taken seriously, but um not 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 but it ha- doesn't but um but we've also got to look at for example male victims and and and, and that, that was one of the things right? we have also got to look at healing because um the women's movement in the 70s they showed there is a real trauma so the courts would take it seriously before before they said oh it doesn't matter so um it doesn't ma- it did matter for the real in, in inverted commas real rape victims but um, it didn't matter for for um, normal people who were raped so and they said oh, just locker room banter it's just oh boys will be boys and, and it just happens that's in a normal course of life um and, and they showed no you have to take it seriously it is a real crime so uh, and now I come 40 50 years later and say um yeah but people can heal we've still got to talk about that and I don't want to endanger um everything that we fought for obviously not um but I do think it is more dangerous if we if we kind of stop somewhere um it's more dangerous if we don't look at healing enough it's even it's more dangerous if we don't look at um um, at healing perpetrators as well and, and i'm also looking at systems how can we heal a system how can we change the system so there w- will be less rapes or preferably no rapes in the long run and all this is important if we want to change society and if we don't keep questioning our raci- or our wisdom um, because it could just mean it was right then and now we have got more knowledge and it's not right anymore and if we don't do that, the price you pay for it is bigger than the price you pay when we hurt people. And when I hurt people, I listen to them. And and I try to to basically find out, okay, how can I do it better the next time?
0: Right. You engage with with this research and uh, these issues on a day-to-day basis. You deliver talks, deliver workshops. You have people come up to you, share their stories. This can't be easy. I mean, this is this is... This, this has to have an emotional toll that's unique to your line of work. So how do you, how do you balance your emotional well-being with the, with the kind of research and the kind of work that you want to do and the kind of cultural shift that you want to bring about?
1: Well, first of all, when I started writing the book, I made the decision I didn't want to write a sad book. I wanted to write a book that you could read and feel empowered by and not kind of um, feel traumatized by reading about rape, because that was what happened to me when I I did my research. Most of the books, I read them and I felt awful afterwards. And I didn't want to reproduce the trauma of rape by a kind of of study of it. And that was very important. So people do talk to me, but um, I don't have the feeling I get the kind of unfiltered trauma people talk to me um when they've already gone through a kind of process of thinking about things and and so in a way it, what I do still do is I do answer every email or I try to answer every email which is hard work because it takes up a lot of time um and and in quite a lot of cases I um I tell them well done I, I see you are on your way and I'm, I'm really impressed by you because I am impressed by most of the people so um I'm not it is not the, the emotional impact is usually one of being impressed by how people deal with even difficult things and and the resilience of, of people. And I mean, just the act of being able to write and say something has happened to me and this is how I deal with it. And, and I, I went out to look for a book and, and I engage in a, in a public discussion it is amazing. Um, the talks I give, I have actually, I, I got some supervision now to, to help me deal with some of the reactions there because um, you do get a lot of anger and the anger is, h- half the time the anger is displaced. It's the anger at the world, the anger at an unjust system and I get it. And I do understand that, but um, I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm not a punching ball, so, so, and I don't just want to push back. I don't want to say, but that is unfair. So I do want to kind of, um, Use that and kind of transform it, and and I'm I'm not there yet 100, but but I'm working with my supervisor, and she is really good, so so um things are moving there, so. Um, yeah it is is a challenge but it's also it's also brilliant I mean you write books and you spend a lot of time on your own and then people actually write you and say this book has been important to me it has changed my life and half the time I'm just incredibly grateful it's brilliant I'm spending too much time on trains (laughs) and and traveling so I do notice my back (laughs) starting to give way here
0: (laughs) Uh, I mean, we could be here for many more hours if we kept talking about the book, which is which is how I'd want to do things, but we are constrained by time and we are constrained by um, the length of this episode. So uh, last thing I want to ask before I let you go is, what's next for you? What, what are you up to now? And what are some of the upcoming projects that we can expect from you? I'm writing a lot about identity politics at the moment. Identity politics...
1: Also, um, as a spectrum, so there's a lot of identity politics I find incredibly invigorating and important and there's a lot of identity politics that makes me nervous and and it is difficult to deal with and I'm trying to find my way around that. and my next book is I'm um, going to deal with that and I've just sent the first 90 pages to my agent and so you've got to keep your fingers crossed <laughs> no. um, it will find a publisher and and that they they will. And, and yeah, and this is really exciting for me because um, in a way my first books were always, um, I always knew I was a feminist and, and I could always engage with that and I could always think about gender, but it was a lot harder for me to um, engage race and, and, and racism and, and think about that and being mixed race in Germany uh, and especially uh, being mixed race is something for a long time, I didn't have any language for that. I mean, we didn't exist in in, in literature, um, apart from as the tragic mulatto who had to die sooner or later by by killing themselves, or, or um, by being murdered, or by 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 going crazy. So uh, the first book, the first novel, the first person um, mixed race narrator was, was *The Book of Suburbia*. So that was 1990. That's not that long ago. Um, mixed-race people were kind of forbidden by law. We were illegal for a long time. I mean, not just in Germany, not just by the Nazis. I mean, you can look at America, you can look at South Africa, you can look at all these laws. So to, to find a language for for that, to find a language for, for the experiences and, and also not make them essentialist. So not not basically say, this is what I am, this is my true self, but say, yeah, what kind... It, it, it has implications on my life just as gender has got implications on my life that I'm so much more than just my gender or just my race or just so
0: oh that's amazing good luck for your for your upcoming book can't wait to read it and thank you so much for your time thank you for the work you do every day and thank you for writing the incredible book that is Rape. I would recommend it to everyone and I hope many people read it after after this episode. But thank you for your time.
1: Oh, thank you no, thank so you. much. That was brilliant. It was lovely talking to you.
0: That was Dr. Me Too Sanyal. Thank you for tuning in. There is a link to organisations that support victims of sexual violence So please feel free to check that out if you or anyone else you know needs that support. If you like this episode, please follow and potentially even share. You can find episode 2 right below this one. And if you have feedback of any kind, please leave a review. That would be so appreciated. But thanks again for tuning in. I'm Asmita and this is Talking Research.